0: Hi, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we present a discussion co-hosted by McKinsey and Canada's Institute of Corporate Directors. It focuses on the role of boards in helping steer organizations through and beyond the COVID-19 crisis. McKinsey's senior partner, Celia Huber, leader of our board services work in North America, moderates the discussion with our three panelists, Nora Offreiter, Peter Besson, and Peggy Mulligan. Nora serves on the boards of Scotia Bank, supermarket operator Kroger, and real estate developer Cadillac Fairview. Peter serves on the boards of HR services company ADP and research firm Gartner. And Peggy serves on the boards of Canadian Western Bank and mining company New Gold. The live online audience also had the opportunity to ask questions of our panelists. Now here's Celia.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. I thought we'd start a little bit about talking about the board's role and how that's evolved over time. After the financial crisis in 2008, uh, we saw just a trend to a much more independent board bringing their own perspectives, And so regulation and scrutiny, quite frankly, on boards really increased. Um, Today, we see increased pressure on boards to be on top of things like technological shifts, particularly digital, bringing in external perspectives and thinking through their responsibilities, not just for oversight of the financials of the company, but also to be more forward-looking and oversight on what's happening in the broader society and how that company is affecting that. Even before the pandemic, we saw a number of different topics coming up for boards uh, that require directors to to maintain a knowledge and understanding of a variety of issues, how to preserve resilience, how to deal with activists, how to make the right decisions on risks like cybersecurity, how to monitor corporate culture. So that pressure on board members to be fully engaged and act as the catalyst for change is coming from many directions now. I just wanted to share a few hallmarks of what we see as boards when they do act as catalysts for change. And the first is a deep understanding of the industry and its context, including the uncertainties. Uh, And boards do this by bringing in outside speakers, external stakeholder input, and exploring various options and scenarios as they go through their work. The second is thinking about strategy as part of every board meeting, not something that happens once a year or once every three years. And lastly, uh, boards who do this well spend real work and attention on how the board operates, how feedback is, um, is done, and how the board really becomes a team, how they intersect with management. And so we're excited today to get into hearing how this really works from our panelists, uh, get their experiences and perspectives on being a board member in this unique time. Why don't we jump right in on best practices? And Peggy, what do you see distinguishes a very good board from the best board, uh, especially in general and now during this economic crisis? I do think actually that the same factors
2: distinguish a good board from a great board in normal times and in times of crisis. The only thing is, it takes a crisis for you to know if you've actually got a great board. Uh, Nothing like a a true test to to understand where you are. Um, First and foremost, I believe, is a board that truly understands the difference between management's role and a board's role and are able to respect that difference because they've undertaken a board's key accountability, which is ensuring that you've got the right CEO and the right supporting cast of executive management on hand that you can indeed rely on them uh, to execute, particularly in times of crisis. Um, but I think you also need um, a, a board and a management team and a company throughout that understands, respects, embraces, and lives both the company's culture and strategy. Uh, I think a robust focus on enterprise risk is is terribly important and not just as an annual check-the-box exercise, as a real living, vibrant uh, function. And, you know, really seeing culture, strategy, and enterprise risk being embedded in everything that a company talks about, everything that a board decides upon, because they aren't disparate activities. It's all rolled into one for success. Uh, and then, of course, finally, I think board makeup is very important.
1: Thanks, Peggy. And actually, this notion of in crisis or out of crisis is something, Peter, that you talked a lot about as we were preparing for this session. Um, you made the point that it's not like a, flip, a switch has flipped uh, and that the strategy of the company remains enduring. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
3: Certainly, when you look at the pandemic and how it's impacted companies, a, there is a minority, maybe 10 15%, for which it's an existential threat. And so my comments don't really apply to that. But for the other companies, I think that if you think about the strategy, I very much share the view, Celia, that, you know, you're doing strategy in every board meeting. You know, what you've done typically has laid out a, a three- to five-year view of the products you want to have in the market, the assets you'd like to own, possibly some companies you'd like to acquire, And the pandemic doesn't really affect that. The other thing I see is you typically have two or three transformation themes, like, okay, we're looking to change the customer experience, we're looking to digitize, and you have some talent development. The pandemic doesn't change in my, from where I've been most of those things. It might cause the acceleration of one or two because, say, the movement online might cause you to move faster on the customer experience if that was a major component of it. The test of the board is a bit to, can you maintain your eyes on the ball of the, the two to three key strategic decisions you're pursuing, the two or three transformation programs that you have going, recognize that the management teams might be reaching saturation, what they can do. You might defer or slow one or two things. But for most, I think, uh, it's helping um, the management team get the additional work done uh, that does come with the crisis. And then the final thing I'd say is, I do believe, and we'll maybe come to this later, there can become a trade-off between maintaining long-term investments and short-term earnings performance, and each board has to make some judgments on those trade-offs. And th- those are not necessarily easy trade-offs to make.
1: Those trade-offs are really the subject of my next question, uh, actually for Nora, because you have been in consumer industries, both a grocery and a hospital board. And so I thought you might talk about how the crisis has impacted those sectors a little bit differently and any lessons you've learned being on those boards. Sure. So I
4: was on, uh, I'm on three boards, including uh, a nonprofit that uh, were essential services. And so there, the crisis had a dramatic impact. If I look at my grocery board, uh, grocery, as many of you will know, is sort of a 1% to 3% growth kind of industry, and their sales were up 30%. So in that kind of situation, you've got an enormous amount of pressure in terms of staffing, supply chain sourcing, keeping food on the shelves. And so I'd only add two things to what, uh, what folks have already said. One is um, I think the importance of, frankly, having an engaged experienced, and industry-knowledgeable board uh, is critical. This is not a time for learning. And then secondly, one of the big takeaways I had was just the importance of having a business continuity plan or an incident response team, whatever the industry lingo in your uh, circumstances might be, so that when a crisis hits, you've got the organizational structure, the processes, Uh, the people in place who know what they need to do right away. And uh, having those things in place and current uh, and practiced is incredibly important. And even having things like uh, co-leaders of each of the um, initiative areas in that business continuity team is critical because if one got sick, you'd have seamless transition to a second leader. And so certainly one of my big takeaways from the crisis is, uh, on all my boards, making sure that that is in place. Who is the emergency replacement for the CEO? What does the incident response team leadership look like? Have we actually dusted off those processes, even though we may not have had a crisis in 10 years?
1: Great. Peggy, um, have you seen new topics emerge on the agenda, and what's top of mind for the boards that you're on? I would not say that we've seen particularly new
2: topics arise. Uh, Much like Peter said, a a good board is focused on their strategy and and where they want to take the company anyways. But certainly there has been some refocusing on how some of that happens. It was, I must say, very interesting trying to figure out how a mining company was going to manage through COVID, particularly one that has its operations basically on the U.S.-Canada border and right beside a First Nations um, reservation as well. So things like access to testing, access to health care, were a very different way of focusing on the ESG that was always top of mind for that board, but it wasn't something that we had considered as, as thoroughly or thoughtfully in that particular area. While the agenda topics haven't changed much, the frequency of meetings has, simply because these are such unusual times and management is having to undertake a number of tactical uh, decisions and, and inspecting business in different ways. So I have had for both of my boards a number of intermediary meetings apart from our normal schedule. But principally, again, back to the concept of management should be management and the board should be the board, these are meetings to inform the board of what management was inspecting to ensure on an immediate and tactical basis we could handle COVID and and what it was doing to us. I do expect that there could be some, not fundamental change, but refocusing of agenda items go forward once we all take a breath, uh, because I think we will all revisit strategies, enterprise risk, Uh, you know, the black swan scenario that we all talk about and and model, we're we're living it, so... um, I, I think there will be a lot of solid learning from that. Uh, well, I hope there will be. I, I'm, I'm quite convinced there will be on the boards I'm on, and I expect uh, the same will hold true everywhere.
1: Right. And, in fact, this notion of resilience combined with strategy is one of the things our panelists talked about uh, as we were preparing. And I think, Nora, i um, wondering if you want to make any comments on capital allocation and how it gets tricky during these times.
4: Yeah, a lot of trends that were out there have accelerated, certainly in consumer boards in terms of changes in behavior and the importance of being current on technology and advancing uh, digital capabilities. And as a result, how you are going to spend your capital in the future becomes a very important element in implementing any strat- the strategic changes and adjustments you want to make. The other thing that is, if you're going to increase your capital spend, then how, you're, how are you going to fund it? Right. And uh, certainly cost reduction, efficiency, advancing digital in order to increase effectiveness and efficiency are, are also, I think, increasingly on the agenda.
1: One question, uh, and I'd love to hear everyone's answers to it, is have you found that decision-making is going faster? I think, um, uh, Peggy, you talked about spending more time uh, and frequency. So what about the speed of decision-making? And I'd love to hear from each of our panelists. Maybe let's start with Peggy first and then go through. Yeah,
2: I would say that the, the speed has definitely increased, but increased with still the same diligence and thoughtfulness around the ultimate decision. You, you just don't have the, the old luxury of saying, well, yeah, good, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that at the next meeting or the next regularly scheduled meeting because
4: um, you simply don't have the, the optionality to do that. Nora? I think in a crisis, you have to make decisions quickly. I think both management and boards have been, uh, I'm going to say, surprised <laughs> quickly. Uh, they can't take decisions when necessary. And once you've experienced that, I think it gives you the confidence to act more quickly. I don't think that casts aside the need for proper business plans and fact-gathering and deliberation that, uh, that add, uh, adds value in a board meeting. And certainly in my boards, the frequency of meetings that were there during the early days of the crisis, they aren't as high. You know, we were meeting weekly and then biweekly and then monthly, but... For those boards that I have that are meeting usually quarterly, uh, to date, we have kept, you know, a check-in every four to six weeks. Management found that helpful. The board found it helpful. And I think that higher level of engagement uh, allows decision-making to happen also a little bit faster
3: because people are more current.
1: Peter, your thoughts on the same topic?
3: Well, I would echo many, many of the comments already made. So I think what I would say that maybe a little bit differently is the speed was increased by really good exception management. You're almost dependent on the management team to have a pretty good sense of the board of what exceptions really had to be addressed, right? So, for example, the decisions around employee safety, when you, you suddenly move 60,000 people from working offices to working from home, you're still trying to keep track of what's happening to everybody. And then cybersecurity, which is already in a very important topic, um, when you displace that many people, becomes a very important topic again, in a different way. And so really, um, a lot of the efficiency and decision making driven by a, a very good board management interface. Much more frequent meetings, but then we had, have had much more frequent updates by email, by memo of different exceptions that come up.
0: An audience member asked how the crisis has affected the division between the role of the board and the role of management specifically, whether boards are getting more involved in some of the crisis-related decisions that a CEO might normally make independently, such as around people returning to an office. And if so, how are boards getting more involved? Peter fielded the question first.
3: Uh, I'll start and then let someone follow up. In the situation I've been involved in, first of all, the chair has an important role to play to, in a sense police the boundary and manage that this is where either the lead director or the chairman has to you know just step up their game and do that well And both the situations i'm personally involved in that's taken place there is deeper conversation particularly around safety related things and, and i characterize as executional decisions usually left to management but if they carry with them a reputational dimension then that tends to, the management team tends to bring it to the board because I actually think you want the diverse perspective of the board on a reputational question, right? Because the board is a little bit more removed from the immediacy of do we staff the office and can think, I'm not sure how the outside world would take that. And so I think that the, you know, you don't want the board trying to run the company operational. And this is again where I go back to the exception management. You do count on management to raise some of those things and make sure they come to the attention of the chair and then to the full board if necessary.
1: Thank you, Nora. Oh, Any... Yeah.
3: So
4: in, you know, with, with the speed of decision-making being taken, risk management, to Peter's point, is a big deal. And so you want to make sure that those frequent touch bases between management and the board to keep people aligned so that if there is something that happens, you haven't left, you know, the board out of the loop, Uh, But I don't think the roles have changed. I mean, management is management, and the board is a supervisory and advisory body uh, in terms of a level of engagement, but it's management's call. What becomes challenging is the virtual nature of it. I think a lot of the interactions that, um, in terms of individual management members that might talk to individual board members at the coffee bar, those types of things, those become a little strained when it's all individual because those natural touch bases don't happen. And so I think where you could mistake the blurring of the lines, I've seen more outreach from management with individual board members or board member to board member because the sidebar conversations don't happen as easily.
2: And, and I would agree with what Peter and said. I've actually seen an increased outreach from the management to the various board members, uh, because this is uncharted territory, and um, seeking the advice and counsel of somebody who may have had not this uh, type of a, a crisis but lived through, you know, other crises. Um, you know, I, I was running operations at Scotiabank during um, 9-11. That, you know, that that was a crisis. There, there was a lot going on. So even some of the experiences from that still become relevant as people are trying to figure their way through. Um, And and I think it's actually very helpful to see that management is using the board as they should use the board as somebody of sober second thought, um, a sounding board, some good experience.
0: Our next audience question focused on whether the crisis has forced the panelists' boards to work through changes in a CEO or senior leadership during the pandemic, Peggy was first to answer.
2: Well, I'll start on on both of my corporate boards and, and my not-for-profit as well. We take uh, very seriously what I consider a board's number one accountability, which is to have the right CEO on 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 board and, and leading the company. And in each of the instances, it has been thankfully a a very resounding um,
4: confirmation
2: that we have the right person.
1: Nor Peter, any comments on
4: this? I mean, I think a crisis highlights skill gaps. And certainly, you know, I didn't, uh, I haven't had any experiences where, you know, there's been a CEO issue, I think, thank goodness. But uh, in some of the management roles, you know, you can see all of a sudden the developmental needs of folks who perhaps haven't been in role as as long. Uh, that's not a criticism; it's just a recognition that, you know, in, there are going to be skill gaps, and that's true at a board level as well. You suddenly are aware of, wow, wouldn't it have been great to have someone who
1: had actually been a board member through a crisis uh, on your board? Peggy, uh, you mentioned that one of your boards onboarded two new directors during this time, I presume virtually. Any practical tips on how that worked and anything special you guys did? Well, uh, clearly it was complicated
2: by not being able to have a face-to-face with the individuals, although in each case, anyone who was sort of local managed to have an outdoor coffee with the person. As we all know, uh, you know, fit It is just tremendously important. We we all go through the right process of having the skill sets required and, and we know that the person comes with the technical competencies, but how they sit in a board is, is, is just so critical. I will say all the things that you hope to achieve through board refresh with a new set of eyes has been just brilliant to have during the pandemic. You know, you, you've got somebody who's asking those fresh questions. Not uninformed questions, because the person does have capabilities in the industry, um, but from a a not used to what our organization does. And it has been so helpful that, you know, like it or not, the longer we're on any board, um, you don't lose your independence, but you start stop to lose some of your your new challenge ability. And, boy, it's been really helpful. There was one or two questions that all of us kind of, you know, you can see the faces on the Zoom going, oh, wow, geez. I should have thought of that. So, you know, anybody who's thinking of holding back on board refresh right now, Mm -hmm. for everyone's sake, don't. I think it's, uh, for us, it's proven to be just fantastic.
1: That's great. One of the most important roles that a board plays is thinking about management compensation. Some companies are doing better, and some companies are doing a lot worse than they would have predicted. And so the question just arises, do you stick to the original uh, performance incentive plan? Do you change that? How do you think about it, Peter?
3: What I've seen has been a sense that the, the management team objectives and hence in their compensation tied to them have not been shifted. There's a very clear recognition. and in all honesty, the management team themselves don't recommend changes to the compensation system. That's fully knowing that um, it will be a bad year from the point of view of compensation. And maybe we should break this up between the C-suite and other employees in the organization. So I say the C-suite and the people whose compensation is heavily dependent on company performance. By and large, the compensation objectives are being left the same, and it will, by and large, be a bad year. And there will be some negative knock-on effects because there's already been a couple of people recruited away because they can time to see that it's not going to pay off in the same way they might have thought before. Uh, but that's been basically the risk the boards have said we're not going to modify the situation for that. I think it's a little bit different when you look down the line. So, for example... You have a direct sales force. Uh, They can't sell nearly as much virtually. It doesn't really work for people hitting their sales quotas and stuff like that. And there have been changes in compensation, which I'd say lean in the direction of keeping whole key people. And then there's been other compensation adjustments where um, the manager team has felt that COVID was impacting in a negative way the livelihoods of people,
1: Peggy, I know you had some thoughts on this, particularly with regard to equity
3: uh, compensation.
1: Yes, but,
2: you know, anybody whose equity comp is coming due this year is, is, is going to get hurt because the markets are still down. You know, if, if you look at equity comp, are you supposed to ride the same curve as your shareholders? Yes, arguably. Um, of course, on the flip side is any equity grants that are happening this year Will be in theory at a, a greatly reduced rate with almost a guaranteed uptick. Uh, I, I've seen some reports from some of the compensation consultants arguing modifications on on both sides. My board has not reached any decisions on that, but it's certainly something that everyone is discussing. I mean, nobody wants to reprice options that you know doesn't work out so well. I think the litmus test is going to be. Have you properly remunerated the right people for the jobs they've done in this situation? And can you explain that in a way that makes sense and is accepted by your shareholders? So the wording and the proxy circulars is is going to be very important. I I certainly don't have any answers at this point in time, but I know that we're going to have a lot of very, uh, very big discussions at uh, all comp committees on how we effective, and I I am talking here mostly about C-suite and and, uh, often, and it's um, no easy answers and a whole lot of questions right now.
1: I I wanted to just ask one quick question before we leave the notion of governance and the board agenda. Both for Peggy and Nora, you're on non for profit boards uh, and previously have been on privately held boards. Just any differences to what we've been talking about on those? I think the
2: primary difference is, is the one that you see in, in the difference between most uh, corporate and not-for-profits, period. And it, it's simply that you you don't, uh, or it's difficult to achieve, mm-hmm. same maturity of governance practices, depth of management, etc. in a not-for-profit world. Most of us who go on not-for-profit boards fully understand and expect that our roles will be you know, further down the threshold to effecting some management type activities while still trying to be respectful of management versus board accountability. And
1: Nora, anything you want to add? I, so I guess t- two points that I think are, well, the,
4: the first may be crisis related, you know, the short-term financial pressure that a lot of companies had to face. If, if they were consumer and had to shut down, if you have an owner with the financial resources to get you through those times, that obviously is a benefit of the luxury of taking a longer-term point of view. But I think the, the other thing that I would say, which is relevant in a crisis but is more important broadly on a private board, is I think just the clarity of the sponsor or the shareholder's role versus the board, I'm on an institutionally-owned corporation, Cadillac Fairview, for example, and they're owned by Teachers Pension Fund. What the, uh, the entity's board is accountable for and what their role is versus the shareholder, if, if it's clear, that works very, very well. Uh, I've been on other boards that are private equity-owned, where perhaps the sponsor sitting around the table, there's also sideboard conversations, and the independent director role isn't as clear, then I think the board, uh, you know, struggles with their role and the effectiveness of uh, engagement there. And I think in a crisis, that is a real issue. In a crisis, if those uh, clarities of role aren't in place, uh, it will add complications that really aren't required.
1: Gotcha. Maybe we should turn to strategy. Peter, you started off in your opening remarks about how many of the strategies have stayed roughly the same. Maybe you can talk a little bit about short-term questions about balancing between investing now versus keeping with the original investment plan.
3: In terms of acceleration, deceleration dimension, I'd say that elements of the strategy were tied to digitization and uh, consumer experience implemented through technology, those have been accelerated. I would say that the transactional dimension of strategy maybe has slowed down a bit to the extent that an important part of strategy might have been acquisitions, part because, you know you can't do due diligence all that well. But also, I think that we're in an environment where we're agreeing on what is the fair value. Something is trickier, right, because stock prices have moved a lot. Um, and then the government interventions into the stock market have been huge. I think the, the area of biggest conversation is, okay, but trading off short-term and long-term, it would be easy to back off of certain strategic investments to close some of the earnings gaps that are pretty much natural in this environment. What I've seen is people having very careful and thoughtful conversations about what can we defer, frankly, what should we do, and just, just take the short-term pain with the stock market.
1: Peggy, I know you have a gold company as one of your companies, I'm sure that there's a lot of scenario planning on what's the price of the mineral and, uh, and what's the market doing? Certainly. And, and make no mistake that that scenario
2: planning, or scenario analyses happens and have happened all the time, because um, before you dare put a shovel in the ground, you need to have a very good view on, on what metal prices are going to be in the future. We have a, a large new project, so the intensity of that scenario planning has really increased. Uh, and the scenario planning has probably advanced its stretch a little in that looking further up the food chain, uh, you know, refiners are kind of important. You, you can get the gold out of the ground, but unless you've got someone to then process it forward. So far more focus on the whole supply chain matter, in- including transfer- simple transportation to even get to the refiners. So more focus, but I, I don't think a-, a huge change because it- it's something most well-run companies do.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. Celia, I would add that, um, you know, I think particularly in the early days of the crisis, you know, the financial scenario planning in terms of how long were shutdowns going to last, how long is volume going to be up, you know, that was, uh absolute table stakes for doing any kind of planning on 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 how to prioritize during the crisis so i think the frequency and the level of that went up dramatically and uh uh you know on all the boards i'm involved with that said i think scenario planning is a tool that you know if you're going to do strategy you know you're going to choose from options uh and you're going to want to understand what uh what the different outcomes might be and again i think anytime there's uncertainty as there is in the consumer world now around uh, has, how long is that behavior change? Is it going to sustain itself? Is it going to accelerate? Is it going to revert partway back to normal? Those are things that you want to test because it will influence uh, things such as capital.
1: Nora, for you on consumer companies, how has the board helped, you know, the, the management team think about maybe more resilient supply chains or doing some of these changes in distribution?
4: If you're on the manufacturing side, you've probably narrowed your SKU, uh, your, your actual production, to focus on the, uh, on the most important SKUs during shortages. If you're a retailer, you've had to deal with a major shift to online, you know, in the, in the order of, you know, 100 to 200 uh, percent. And that requires uh, board-level engagement because it's a reallocation of resources, both capital and human. And it leads to a bunch of discussions such as partnerships. Right to accelerate capabilities. I think in many industries, certainly in the consumer front, there will be pressure towards consolidation uh, and scale. Uh, if you're already at scale, it'll be around uh, how do you how do you uh, leverage the momentum and the shift in behavior to advance some of those uh, strategic trends that you were uh, you were already investing in. How quickly you advance those things, how quickly you expand them. Those are definitely board decisions and supply chain is. Critical to the survival uh, and resiliency of, uh, of many companies.
0: Another audience member asked if there were any silver linings or pleasant surprises that our panelists had encountered during these difficult past few months. Peggy was first to answer.
2: You know, nothing unites like a common enemy. You know, we talk about resiliency of the supply chain, boy, the resiliency of our our management teams, and not just management, but like throughout the organization. It's been um, really, really wonderful to see. People have stepped up. Um, I find people are being very innovative in their thinking and happy to express those thoughts, and they're being well-listened to. Uh, so certainly with my boards, the entities overall, you know, it's tough times, but, boy, it's really garnered a um, a real team attitude and, and some very, very uh, strong advances in, in some of the things that... Uh, we've been working
3: on a couple of things i would echo peggy's views in terms of the management teams coming together um and really working um incredibly well and really stepping up the other thing i am very very pleasantly surprised is when you have you know tens of thousands of people go from working in an office to working from home and still maintaining a extremely positive customer experience I regard that as nothing short of a miracle. That really implies a huge amount of heroic effort by a lot of people down the line. Often the the hesitation about making changes and processes and stuff like that always hinges on, well, people won't be able to do it. I think they've really proven something quite different in this forced change.
0: Our next audience question concerned a statement made by the U.S.-based Business Roundtable about a year ago on how corporations should move from focusing solely on shareholders to embracing a wider group of stakeholders. How are the panelists' boards engaging on this topic, and specifically around things like ESG, corporate purpose, and diversity and inclusion? Peggy responds.
2: I think the corporate world is really advancing on the ESG front. I think we're doing it both because it's the right thing to do, and it can be achieved without sacrificing profits to some great degree. Uh, And let's be honest, we're getting a really solid nudge from a lot of extraordinarily influential uh, shareholders to to get there. So I I think there is a good, not just acceptance in in the companies I deal with, but an, um, an embracing of the ESG concept and not just, so that we can publicize that we are, but because it, it, it's important, it matters. You know, you think about a gold miner in particular, the The risk of, of environmental impact is, is pretty darn catastrophic if you're not mindful. And shareholders understand that, and, you know, it's part of their risk adjustment assessment as to whether they're going to invest in your company or somebody else.
4: Nora? Um, yeah, so... Uh just a comment in terms of the um, stakeholders versus shareholders. As you'll know, Celia, in in Canada, we are you know boards of directors are accountable for the health and wellness and long term sustainability of the company uh, on which they're on their bo- on on the board, rather than just the shareholders. In the U.S., if you have things like subordinated uh, debt holders, ultimately, if the company's in trouble, you're also accountable to those. But I would say any um, any organization. If you take care of your staff and if you take care of your customers, ultimately, you're going to take care of your shareholders. If you're focused only on the shareholders and not the staff uh, and the customers, uh, you know, those shareholders are going to end up being unhappy. So to, to a certain extent, it's common sense. If you have a clear purpose, that will naturally enhance your commitments around ESG, not only good governments, but the social impact for those companies that historically have stepped up, and for those that haven't uh, are increasingly uh, going to have to, because I think that is part of the, uh, the corporate fabric now. Uh, and purpose, uh, I've found a- in my boards is very um, meaningful in terms of enabling social impact. If you have a purpose that is meaningful at a company level, it can translate into social uh, and reinforces the culture and allows everyone to align and celebrate what great things they can do. And I've seen that in each of the companies I'm involved in. It's highly motivating.
1: So the closing question, and maybe kind of in a rapid fire round, we'll go through all three of our panelists. We talked about uh, boards being a catalyst for change, and we talked about COVID being a catalyst for change in many situations. Uh, Just wondering if you'd highlight one or two business opportunities or transformational opportunities that you've seen in your companies. And maybe let's start with Peggy, Peter, then Nora. Okay. Well,
2: cer- certainly this has uh, shaken the the, uh, the annual strategy session where you, you think you encompass everything that might happen. It's a, a good wake-up call that, no, you didn't. Certainly for us uh, in the gold mine in, in particular, we're looking at how better to use technology. It, it takes away you know, human risk through COVID, and, and frankly, it takes away a whole lot of accident-type risk and enhances productivity. So the transformation of the company with the far better use of technology is something we're definitely looking at.
3: I would echo that with a slight twist on it. The place I'm involved, um, there's large digital transformations underway. By and large, the technologies are in place, and the barrier has been behavioral change in people. And by having been forced to do so much behavioral change recently, it looks like it might be a silver lining here, that the art of the possible will be seen as far more robust than... Would have been the case six months
4: ago. I would sort of echo the same thing in terms of, to me, the big opportunity from the crisis is just, uh, it's unlocked the inertia around behavior. Uh, management teams work together, and a lot of the trends that were moving along have been accelerated. So, you know, the opportunity is not to lose the momentum of change here.
1: Uh, I wanted to thank our three panelists, Peggy, Peter, and Nora. Thank you so much for spending the time this morning and all the preparation.
0: A transcript of this conversation will soon be made available on the Inside the Strategy Room collection page on McKinsey.com, where you may also easily filter and listen to previous episodes. For the most current information on the implications of COVID-19 for your business, we encourage you to visit McKinsey.com slash coronavirus. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast episode, please email us at InsideTheStrategyRoom at McKinsey.com. If you'd like to receive email alerts on our latest insights, we encourage you to sign up on the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page on McKinsey.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy and connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.